0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Von Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security, and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Center for International and Defense Policy.
1: And I'm Steve Seidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's Podcast Network, so please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Stephanie, how you doing?
0: I'm doing great, Steve, but my life isn't as exciting as yours. You are gallivanting at conferences. You are interviewing the Minister of National Defense. Tell me all about that.
1: The conference is the Ottawa Conference on Defense and Security. It's the big show every year, back in person, run by the Conference of Defense Associations Institute, which is a founding partner of the CDSN. And they did a great job every year. They bring in big names and I was only able to attend for one day. But the day I, I attended was Friday, which included a segment that I, I was a part of. I, I moderated a chat with Darrell Brickner, who is a pollster, and that will eventually become an, a, a segment on battle rhythm. So that was really interesting. He had a lot of interesting things to say about the state of Canadian public opinion. Well, one of the interesting things was he said, it's not so much an inflation crisis, it's a cost of housing crisis. So that's really where public opinion centered on, is, is the concerns about people's ability to buy a house and this was already as few prices were jumping up so he wasn't really that concerned about what that how fuel prices were going to change public opinion there was a panel on indo-pacific and that was very interesting they had a woman from the french ministry of foreign affairs or defense they had an, the australian attache they had a retired american admiral who insisted on spending the first 10 minutes of his presentation showing us his entire history uh, and family history which was kind of a waste of time there was also a uh, canadian naval officers and, and that was a very interesting panel the highlight of the day was actually the Minister of National Defense. She was the last speaker, and she gave a much more engaging talk than her predecessor talked about the Ukraine, talked about uh, the Ukraine crisis, talked about the state of uh, the key forces of the world, and then then sort of the stuff at home. And it was a good, great tour of the horizon. She led it off by saying that she's quite the professor and she did so because she said, I, she basically has three segments of the talk, and then she you know allied in her talk and then she gave the talk. and I think it played really well in the room, and she responded to questions well. She was a little sensitive, or a little more careful, I should say, on on a couple of issues I thought felt which was kind of striking. One was she was asked about ABM because the topic of northern modernization of the warning systems up far north came up. And people said, well, if we're doing that, why don't we join the United States in its various ABM anti-ballistic missile efforts? And she basically said that we're going to do everything but that. And she was very careful about that. So I guess that's still a hot issue within the Liberal Party. I think it's been overcome by events myself that there is not an ABM treaty to, to worry about anymore since the United States ran over 20 years ago. And the other issue that she was careful about was she talked about there not need, being a need for a defense review because she'd rather make decisions than wait for a long review process. And I didn't ask any questions of her because I knew I was talking to her, well, yesterday, today is Tuesday. The 15th, the Ides of March. Yesterday, I talked to her for half an hour for the podcast. And I know I know we'd be doing that I'm sorry you couldn't make it since you were traveling that was a really interesting conversation so I saved my questions for that and I uh, as you, as you hear later on we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit before we introduce the interview so yeah it's been you know a pretty exciting week of talking to to the minister and and going to that conference so it was' great to be in quiet downtown Ottawa no worries of occupiers just driving downtown walking over mm-hmm. to the chateau laurier or Hogwarts, as I like to call it, and just having sort of a normal, you know, March day. It was just terrific. It was great to see people. So that's what's in my life. How's uh, the trip out uh, go back for your kids week off of school?
0: Uneventful. And I teach on Monday, so I taught my uh, three-hour seminar. We had some amazing guest speakers come in because we were doing a targeting simulation with my grad class. And you know what? Doing this targeting simulation when we first designed it uh, last year with General Bougon, actually, who was a visiting defense fellow at, at Queens, you know, we didn't anticipate how relevant it would become. And this year, I think talking through both non-lethal and lethal targeting options and going over the law of armed conflict, I think really informed the students' view on what is going on right now and gave them an additional layer of understanding the ongoing headlines in terms of what Russia is doing in in Ukraine. But I also just a quick follow-up on what you've been saying with the Ottawa conference, because as you said, I, I... I was in there in Ottawa, and I was really curious to see how those discussions would unfold and what the defense minister would cover in her speech. And of course, I saw some snippets of that in the news with regards to her announcement of boosting Canadian participation at NORAD. So that implies certain investments that are going to be made and maybe an increase in the defense budget. And I know she's traveling for NATO discussions in the coming days. So do you think there's additional pressure now on Canada to meet that 2% pledge? I know technically, when we're looking at the calendar, Canada still has two years to do so. But it <laughs> always seemed quite unlikely from my perspective, and I'll say from our perspective, because we've talked about this before on the podcast. But has your view changed on that? I know it didn't come up in your interview with Nun, but maybe those types of questions came up at the conference last week.
1: Sure. She was asked a bit about that. And if she was clear that they were to be spending more money, any idea that there'd be a post-pandemic defense cut are out the window. I'm very convinced of that. I know that when. the... The pandemic hit, there were concerns in d d that with all the deficit spending, the, there would be concerns after the pandemic, if we ever get to that after the pandemic stage, that we'd be cutting fence spending because that's where the money's at. But that's not going to happen. She said that they're going to spend roughly a quarter of a billion dollars on just doing the research- on Northern modernization that is improving the warning systems up North. So that's an increase in spending right there because that system was not costed into this defense review five years ago. So that's an additional spend. And a quarter of a billion dollars is real money in Canada for a spending. And as they pursue that, that will lead to more spending. Again, the problem with procurement is actually taking the money and, and spending it, which gets me to why I'm skeptical that they'll be able to get to 2% because that would require them to not just promise to spend money, but actually spend it. We don't procure things that quickly, even if we make the decision on the fighter replacement, and that's something that she hinted at that that decision would be forthcoming sometime, I think, in the next in the next year. Is that even if you make that decision, you're not instantly forking over billions of dollars to either Saab or it's a Lockheed Martin to to whoever makes the F-35, and so that process takes time. They could dramatically increase spending by you know giving everybody a, a 10%, 15%, 20% raise in the calf because personnel is 50% of the of the budget or something around there. The problem, though, is that while you can, you can give everybody a raise, the real problem is retention and recruitment. You have to also maybe expand the force or at least catch up and get the 10,000-person gap since we're below our targets, that would help get us closer to two percent. So I I think we'll make progress in that direction. I don't think we're gonna jump to two percent. John Ivan had a column where he said that we should get to two percent in three years, and I scoffed loudly about that because it's it's we just don't have the procurement bodies that is people to do the contracting, people to do the you know, take care of the bidding and write the write the the drafts for requests or whatever it's called and get the money through the system that quickly. We just can't do it that quickly. But I think we'll make progress. I don't think we'll, we'll be able to do what the Germans did, which was sort of you know make this promise and get there. But mm-hmm. I think we'll make progress. And I also think that the 2% goal by itself is by itself, as we've talked about before, problematic. Yeah. But. I think we'll make progress towards it. I think it's gonna be very the public opinion on defense spending is, is changing in the West in West Europe and North America, thanks to the Russians. So I think it'll be much easier for this prime minister and the next one to make claims about this and, and push forward on it.
0: Well, actually that's a good segue to uh, talk about Russia because a lot's happened in the last two weeks. And I'm sure you've been following closely, and I'm sure that was also a big topic of discussion, if not on the agenda of the Ottawa conference, and certainly on the margins.
1: Yes, yeah, so well it was part of part of uh, Minister Anand's speech she was talking about what they had committed uh, and what they were doing and she did it. I think she indicated then uh, that she was going back you know that she had just spent time in Europe and there's a what they call an extraordinary meeting of the defense Minister so it wasn't ske- you know it was not a previously scheduled NAC DM but now there's gonna be a meeting I think Tuesday and Wednesday today and tomorrow with the defense ministers trying to hash this stuff out. She had a series of meetings with Bojo, with the Dutch prime minister showing up. She had other meetings going on. And so she talked a bit about that in her speech. And that was clearly something that had been in the, in the room of, over the previous couple of days. And so I think there's not a whole lot more we can do that we're not already doing. There will be some discussion of more stuff we can find on the shelf. That we we could send immediately. She was very clear that the equipment that we had promised was not only promised but uh, shipped over, sent, and delivered. So all the things that she'll list off in, in our podcast, uh, in our interview, is already there. It's not stuff that we promised and are get, getting there sometime soon. Uh, mm-hmm. They've made a lot of progress on getting stuff there, and it's been delivered to the Ukrainians. So there was a lot of discussion about it. You know, there's I made a snarky joke during my thing about how nobody pushes for a no-fly zone besides random retired generals. And I mentioned Rick Hillier's name and in the room was pretty amused by that. That I think I think I think most senior officers and most defense contractors and most observers of Canadian defense and security who were there that day understand that a no-fly zone is not going to happen and they're they're all kind of puzzled by Rick Hillier's stance. And speaking of that, the President Zelensky of Ukraine is going to be in Parliament today, a Tuesday, the, the 15th, to talk a- about his situation and, and ask for more help. And he may end up asking for a no fly zone, but it's clear that's not really in the cards because that would mean more. And this This is not our war to fight. Although there's a lot of people who are very upset about that. I did get hate mail while I was on a chairlift, not this weekend, but previous weekend, because I had said on the, in the media that that wasn't going to happen. And the people, people who are friends of Ukrainians or who are Ukrainians were very upset that we're not willing to go to war for them. Did but,
0: you say but, you got hate mail while on the chairlift? Do you read your email while you're going up the hill on the chairlift?
1: Well, sometimes the chairs are slow and I was, <laughs> and I'd been getting requests to do a fair amount of media. So I, you know, I could feel my phone buzz while it's in my jacket pocket. And so sometimes- not always i would take my gloves off and i'd check my email to see if there's somebody who wants to talk to me because i'm i'm that way and i got two pieces of email from a couple of women who were very upset about my my stance and so i actually emailed them both saying you know i understand you know, this is a difficult situation and I would like for us to do, you know, to do more, but we, you I know, mean, we're not going to risk World War Three for Ukraine. And they, they responded back eventually, you know, saying that they were, you know, slightly apologetic for being so vehement in their hate mail. So it was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a, in the end, a not bad conversation, but I rarely get hate mail for my new appearances, but given um, how much media I've been doing the past two weeks or three weeks, I, I was due.
0: Well, maybe one day you'll even do a five-minute media hit on a chairlift? Wouldn't that be something?
1: Well, it was funny because actually J.C. Boucher, who I was skiing with, ended up almost doing that. He, he skied <laughs> down to the bottom to do a, a, his regular media appearance that he had scheduled in. I did get a request from one media outlet saying, hey, are you free in 10 minutes? And of course I saw it an hour, an hour later because I wasn't checking my email quite that uh, <laughs> uh, frequently. So Stephanie, you know, a lot of the things have happened. We had that attack on, on Western Ukraine, the base that had been used by Western trainers that before the war and then had been used as a rallying point for the, well, foreign fighters. Did you have any particular reaction to that? Was this sort of normal war stuff or was it seen as provocative to you?
0: I think that international fighters on both sides are going to be a, a factor you know, in the coming weeks and months. And I wonder whether they'll serve to be more of a distraction on on Mm -hmm. each side and complicate just the logistics of the battle or whether those forces can truly tip the balance. So I'm not quite sure. And and at least on the Russian side, it doesn't seem like their foreign fighters have have made it anywhere close to to the battlefield. But the attack of the facility was significant, not only because we'll start hearing of, you know, perhaps injured Canadians who have gone there to, to fight and to join the Ukrainian forces. So, so that might play into how public opinion feels about the evolution of the war and then the fight closer to Poland's border is of broader concern, of course, to NATO. And, I, and I'm sure you know that'll be an intense point of the discussions in the next couple of days. More broadly speaking, that will be a, a zone of intensifying activity because that's also where the armed convoys come from, you know. Mm-hmm. Ukraine has a number of, of neighbors. So I imagine a lot of those armed convoys are coming from Romania and Poland. And Russia obviously made some statements uh, with regards to the fact that those arms convoys would be legitimate targets for, for attack. So you were mentioning the commitments that were made on behalf of Canada in terms of what we're sending over there and that that'll continue. But I think it'll get increasingly hard to get stuff into Ukraine because I think those arms convoys will be deliberately targeted and, and tracked. And as Russia makes more headway, I think it'll become increasingly difficult to, to get the stuff there.
1: Well, it's interesting from a military standpoint, there's two dynamics here that might cut against that. One is the Russians simply don't have the troops to like really block the border. They, have, they don't have enough troops to do what they're trying to do. So if they, they wanted to block the border with you know infantry on the ground, I, I, I'm not sure they could get there. And the second thing is, is the Russians have shown a real inability to do anything that's very well targeted by aircraft. This is something that's been entirely missing in terms of using a lot of dumb bombs, not being very accurate. And so the the key thing about hitting that one base was that was a a stationary facility so they could hit it with their cruise missiles and other missiles. But I'm not so sure that they could hit moving convoys all that easily from the air. It's just the Russian military performance has been just way below what we might have expected. But yeah, attacks near the border are going to scare NATO quite a bit. Do do think that Putin is quite very much operating on the one side of that bright, shiny line. So I think that in some ways is good news that the Jens Stolenberg pointed out, attacking convoys when they're in Ukraine is fair game, attacking them when they're in Poland or another NATO country is not fair game, and, and everybody seems to be playing by these rules, makes sense. I know this is puzzling for some people that we have these limits on war, that the battlefield is limited to, to Ukraine, but we've been doing this kind of thing since Korea. That is, a limited war where there are either informal or formal rules that, the various combatants respect, have has been going on since, well, the advent of the nuclear age and actually took place in the wars before World War One, World War II. Those were the exceptions of total war. And so I would expect that these these rules to be followed. And when Jens Stolenberg said that, He's been very clear about drawing the line and people might get very disturbed by the fact that he's saying that, well, there's a war in Ukraine and things are fair game there, but this is part of the process of making sure that this does not escalate. And mm-hmm. so we see both, you know, tacit understandings, but having the secretary general of NATO explicitly say this same convoy will be treated, it should be treated differently when it's on this side of the line and versus that side of the line, I think is an important thing to be said. Mm-hmm. It was very striking, you know, for him to be elaborating what the rules are, because sometimes these things are communicated either in, you know, Know, right about contacts or just by behavior, but he said it out loud, and I, I think that was a good thing. Even if it freaks some people out, I think it's important to to have that conversation.
0: On the convoys, there's there's one thing I'm, I'm I just want to press you a bit further on because. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I agree with you with, uh, with the SecGen's pronouncements. I think that's really important to have as much clarity as possible in that. But then, you know, what about the armed convoys reaching their destination? So you mentioned you were skeptical that the flow of equipment and arms would get disrupted because of military incompetence on the Russian side, but essentially the larger cities are, are, are becoming increasingly encircled. So I just don't see how the, the status quo will continue with regards mm. to that. That free flow.
1: Well, that, that's a good point. That the the cities are getting closer to being circled, but the question is, is where are the Ukrainian units that need this stuff? Some of them are in the cities, but some of them are outside the cities, and they may try to break through. So, I guess I was speaking more of just stuff. The stuff getting into Ukraine, how it gets distributed in Ukraine, is going to be something that's going to be pretty complex. But. Again, one of the things about the Russian forces is they simply don't have enough of them. They went with too few forces, even though they've now committed 100% of the folks they had arrayed around the country. They have very expansive goals. They're occupy They're they're trying to fight, you know, three different axes of of operations across a country what the size of either France or much of Western Europe, and they're breaking down. So I think that the Ukrainians have proven smart thus far about moving things around. So I, I expect them to be continue to have some ability to, to, to get things through to, to various spots. So the hard part, the part that will be very difficult is, is the flow of food and humanitarian aid because that that's a lot more stuff. That's that's that every city requires a lot of food, water, medical equipment, and the rest for the people, and that's going to be really difficult to sustain because that requires a steady beat of a lot of stuff because these are you know heavily populated cities, and that's going to be really challenging. And the Russians have already said they're not going to let in humanitarian aid into these cities, so that's going to be a real problem. And what we're not really really getting a good picture of is exactly how destructive this war is to the Ukrainian people we're seeing it with refugee flows yeah. but we're not really seeing it we don't really have any idea what the casualty figures are but the russian strategy has shifted towards intentionally creating mass casualties to put pressure on the ukrainian government so they're shelling the cities of, of, of ukraine and it's causing a tremendous amount of damage and mm-hmm. that's their strategy That has that shifted from, hey, we're going to knock this government over pretty quickly to, I guess we're going to have to kill them until they, they, they give in. And that's that's where we're at right now. But there are military experts who are suggesting that the ability for the Russians to continue to do this is, is going to be challenged simply by their own logistical problems.
0: Yeah, you're right. No matter who wins, uh, costs are devastating to both sides. You know, Ukraine is going to be left with a destroyed country. And then Russia a destroyed economy and a marginalized the status on the world stage. It's difficult to see how that can all end well. Do you think there's still hopes for a ceasefire and, and peace talks? And, you know, on the one hand, I really want the violence to, to end and for Putin to have a way to save face. But on the other hand, I think it's also very dangerous to accommodate Putin like he was accommodated in 2014, because then what he's learning is that, you know, he can get away with a lot. So um, are you hopeful about the next few days when it comes to a ceasefire and, and peace talks to end the violence?
1: Not in the next few days. Eventually, you know, there'll be negotiations, there'll be attempted ceasefires, the ceasefires, first ceasefires will fail, eventually one will stick. But how long it takes to get there, I, I really don't know. Putin is under a tremendous amount of pressure. He's realized that his, his, his staff has lied to him about this stuff because he's created a very small inner circle of yes people who have basically told him what he wanted to hear. And, and now he's seen things that are, are pretty awful. Costs in Russia are going high. I mean, repression is not cheap and it's very disruptive, and he's had to engage more repression. The sanctions have been biting harder than anybody could possibly imagined a month ago. So uh, yeah, I would like for him to find a, a graceful way out, some way to declare victory and, and pull out. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what Zelensky is willing to agree to. Maybe some sort of status quo ante where now Ukraine gets recognized as part of Russia. Maybe, I don't know, but I don't think Zelensky is going to give it any time too soon, and it's really going to depend on dynamics on the ground. Will the Russian army keep fighting? Because one of the things that happens in war is sometimes militaries decide that they don't want to do it anymore and so if if there was not a coup against Putin but a mutiny where some units or many units decide not to fight because you know they're not getting fed and they they weren't really you know well indoctrinated into why war was happening in the first place and they were kind of surprised by this war happening so you can see something like that happening so all wars do end this one will end maybe the Russians will win in the short term by by Creating so much damage and starving the cities of, of Ukraine that Zelensky ultimately gives in. But any Russian occupation or any stooge that is put in place by the Russians is going to be there temporarily. And there'll be a, a counterinsurgency, there'll be an insurgency. And then the Russians will have to do counterinsurgency, which we know to be very costly and difficult and unlikely to succeed. So I, I am not optimistic about what's gonna happen in the next few days or weeks. Uh, One of the big concerns right now is that they've been, the Russians have been talking about how the Americans have chemical weapons and biological weapons they've been producing or developing in Ukraine, which is, could be seen as a precursor to them actually using them and then blaming the West for that. And if that happens, again, there'll be double the pressure on the West to respond. It'll obviously hurt a lot of Ukrainians. And so that's something to be really concerned about. Yeah. One development happened overnight, I don't know if you caught it, is that the presidents of Poland, uh, the Czech Republic and Slovenia went to Kiev to meet with Zelensky, they, they went into a country under attack, and uh, they went into a city that's under fire to meet. And so that's, that's quite a remarkable mm-hmm. moment. I don't know if you heard about it, but if you have any reactions to that, because that, that's sort of a major political move by those, those individuals. By those prime ministers. Yeah.
0: No, I arrived late last night at the cottage, and and I haven't seen that.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if there's any video. Just I'm just seeing it come up on Twitter as I'm catching up this morning. Anyway, there's a lot more to be covered on this. It's this 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 conflict's not going to go away. I'm sure we'll talk about it again in two weeks. It's dominating the coverage. There are things, other things going on in the world, but it's certainly captured our attention. It's captured the attention of, of Ottawa, certainly, of our prime minister and his entire team You know, spending time in Europe last week trying to figure out responses and talking to new allies. But I guess we should move on to the interview since that's what people are really here to listen to today.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say, you know, time to get to the feature interview because I'm sure our audience is quite eager to get to this interview with the minister and you covered a lot of ground. From culture change in the Canadian Armed Forces to Ukraine. So you can go ahead and set that one up.
1: Sure. I, I had a conversation with Minister Anand last fall, shortly after she became a minister, and I had asked her to. Be on the podcast at some point. I never expected to get the email quite so soon because she's obviously very busy this week. But she did quite a media blitz over the weekend on TV. So her staff had reached out to me uh, last week to arrange for this interview. They didn't give me any restrictions on on topics. I felt we should ask questions that weren't being asked by the media, who are mostly focused on Ukraine. And so most of the conversation was actually focused on on her role as being the civilian in Canadian civil military relations. You know, when we talk about civilian control of the military, it's her job more than anybody else's, and so so I asked her about that and what she she learned in her first several months, what she's changed, what does it mean to control the military? How do we measure progress in the effort to change the, the culture of the calf? And then we talked a little bit about NATO. And we talked a little bit about Ukraine. And we also talked a little bit about how we have different teaching philosophies, which is she's always far more prepared than I am. And so it was a very engaging conversation. So uh, we'll leave it there. And thanks, Stephanie, for making time for us before you take your your boys out in the slopes. Maybe someday we'll have a podcast where we both are on the same mountain and we're doing it from the chairlift.
0: Not if I can help it. <laughs> I'm I'm really happy to take uh, the boys out skiing for a couple of days while they're on March break, but skiing is really not my favorite activity. So I just hope that I'm coming back in one piece and I'll let you know how all of this goes, but uh, great interview. Here it is. And I'll talk to you soon, Steve.
1: All right. Take care. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have the Minister of National Defense, Anita Anand, who we usually refer to as Professor Anand, but for, for this case, we'll refer to her as Minister. She was on the TV this past weekend talking a lot about Ukraine, so we'll save the Ukraine discussion for, for the end of this conversation. But as a scholar of civil military relations, I, I first have to ask, since you're the civilian in Canadian civil military relations, you're the most important civilian in this process of civilian control, I'm curious as to how you see the state of Canadian civil-military relations given that there was a lot of controversy
2: over the past year. Well, thanks so much, Steve, for having me on. And let me just say in direct response to that question that I, given my background before entering politics, am very much ensconced in the legislation, the governance relating to the relationship. Between the civilian and the military branch of DD and government generally. And so I start in terms of answering this question at Section 4 of the National Defense Act, which states that, as you know, the minister has the management and direction of the Canadian Forces and of all matters relating to national defense. That is the fundamental principle upon which my role is based, and indeed, uh, the relationship that you pointed to in your question is based. And from there, we, of course, build out to Section 7, the Deputy Minister of National Defense's role, as well as Section 18, the role of the Chief of Defense Staff. And what you have there in those three sections is a triumvirate. And the importance of this triumvirate operating in sync and in tandem every day in terms of the vast number of issues that come before the defense team is fundamental. And so recognizing this, as soon as I was appointed, I laid down some new processes. And one of the new processes is that we meet every day. As a triumvirate to discuss the important issues that are before the defense team, including urgent issues like Ukraine, but also additional longer term issues, including our uh, procurements and our defense spending over the long term. And this is a forum where we can bring any issue whatsoever, urgent or not, for discussion and At the very rock bottom is a functional working relationship where we collaborate and coordinate as a team. And that is what is necessary for this triumvirate and the governance structure as a whole to work.
1: I've got a question about the new processes, which is, I made some comments last fall on this podcast about personnel issues and then... The CDS reached out to me and said, well, you've got some things wrong here. And one of the things that seemed to be different about the processes for personnel issues was that there would be civilians now on the boards that are evaluated who becomes a senior officer in the CDS. And one other thing that came up in that part of that conversation was, they said that he would put put these packages together and send them up to defense minister's office. And so that's you, or it's your people. So I guess the two-part question is: is who in your office reads these files, and has there been any files that you've read thus far that you've turned around and gone, you know, this officer is not quite up to snuff? Have you exerted your impact on on that process, or has it mostly been these things sail right through because they've been, you know, anticipating exactly what you need? Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, so as you know, in governance. And as someone who reads everything, (laughs) generally, I am not a person that would simply sign off on a document that I haven't read and agree with. Mm -hmm. That applies not only to personnel files, but to all files. And if I'm expected to provide a signature and I'm not given enough time to review the documents, I push back immediately and say, this is not how it works in my office. So the answer to your question is, I review all files, I discuss all files, if I have any issues with files, I raise those issues, and indeed have raised a number of questions and issues. And one of the issues I can point to just as an example, is my commitment and our government's commitment to diversity and inclusion in appointments. And almost every single conversation I have with the CDS about personnel, I'm raising issues relating to meritorious appointments, diversity and inclusion, process by which these nominations are coming to me. And in fact, I have requested that we institute additional processes to ensure that there is objective input Two appointments that is outside the chain of command. So I will just say that these are very important issues to me and to the chief, as well as the deputy minister. And we will keep working on our our governance to ensure that the best people are appointed, most meritorious uh, people are appointed, given the issues that we have before us as a whole.
1: Okay, thank you. I guess a related question was when you started, you immediately said, one of the questions you had was which elements of the Deschamps report were implemented, which ones weren't, and why weren't those that weren't implemented, not implemented? And I'm curious as to what you discovered in that quest for understanding why the civilian imperatives were not followed through.
2: So that was just one of many questions that i continue continued to be asking about the work that preceded me mm-hmm. as minister. And the reality is that in uncovering systemic problems in culture in the Canadian Armed Forces highlighted the existence of the issue. But the practical implementation of how we address culture change has fallen to the Fish Report. Mm -hmm. we accepted all of those recommendations, of course, as well as Uh, the Arbour recommendations. And of course, we await the interim report, which we will get in March, and then the final report, which we will get in May. All of this to say that there is the encapsulation of the recommendations from Deschamps and Fish in a number of the programs that we are implementing right now. For example, the sexual misconduct uh, response center which our government provided 236 million dollars towards uh 821 that is a direct response to the recommendations that we received from for example justice Deschamps. so that took some time for me to fully understand that there isn't always one answer in a policy to one recommendation in a report mm-hmm but there is the evidence of response to recommendations in the policy proposals that we are bringing forward. So what I say to the team then is how is the Canadian public supposed to know what we are doing as responses to these recommendations if we don't tell them? So what I have said is I am very much in favor of us continuing to implement changes relating to culture in the Canadian Armed Forces, but we actually have to make our policy responses digestible and understandable to the Canadian Armed Forces and the Canadian public, and therefore, we need to go before the public and explain what we're doing, and that's why we had a tech brief for the Canadian public prior to the Christmas holidays, and that's why we will have additional tech briefs coming up to further explain how we are actually attacking the issue of cultural change in the military, and we will continue
1: to do that. And so I guess the hardest thing to communicate will be, what does success look like? How do you know that you're making headway on this, on culture change in the military?
2: Well, it's a great question because obviously it is a huge undertaking, but the first point I will make is that nothing will solve this problem overnight but I am firing on all cylinders and our team is firing on all cylinders. I think we have to start with the overall objective and the overall objective for me is a Canadian Armed Forces that has a strong underpinning of durable rules and institutional culture where we have a workplace in which everyone feels safe, protected, and respected. And that broad principle is one that I'm sure you've heard me say before, but it is so important. And why is it so important? It's so important because we have to execute on strong, secure, engaged. We have to defend our country. We have to live up to our NORAD commitments and our NATO commitments. But unless people can come to work at the Canadian Armed Forces and feel safe, protected, and respected, it will be very difficult for us to live up to our additional commitments. And that's why it is a priority for me. And that is why it is necessary for us to go forward with.
1: Okay. I I guess I'm still trying to figure out, uh, you you know, you were very clear on Friday at the Ottawa a conference on defense of security. That you don't know how long you're to serve in this position. Minority governments are what they are, and all the rest of it. But let's let's say you're around in this position next November, and you're coming up on a year. I think people will be asking, okay, what what would you like to have accomplished in a year for obviously these these things that take you know a long long time? What would be the glimmerings of success look like?
2: Okay, so I look at it in this way: How are we making? progress. Mm -hmm. How will I be tracking our progress? First of all, recruitment and retention numbers, Mm
0: -hmm. including
2: and especially women. Second, the pace of legislative and regulatory change. Third, the implementation and from the Deschamps and Fish reports, and soon the Arbour report. Fourth, Mm -hmm. what we hear in consultations with Canadian Armed Forces members. We have, obviously, Lieutenant General Jenny Cagnon who's been consulting with thousands of members. Uh, Fifth, what we hear from stakeholder groups like INJ 700, with whom I meet regularly. And finally, we have an online culture change progress tracker, Mm. which I am closely following and which I want to make sure we are updating. And that is going to be providing the public with the work that we're doing. But it's also something that I... Think mm-hmm. is important because that tracker has to grow <laughs> we have to make sure that we are adding to it mm-hmm. and so when my time as minister ends i want to know that I contributed to durable change in our institutions and the institutional culture of the Canadian Armed Forces. And those items that I mentioned are just some of the ways that I am tracking that progress.
1: So you mentioned legislative changes. I've been wondering about whether it made sense at this point in time to revise the National Defense Act to clarify things, for instance, because when I talk to people in the military or people who've recently retired from the military, they seem to think that the CDS is all powerful and the only tool you really have is the ability to hire and fire them. And I obviously that you think there's, there's more to it than that. And so does it require additional legislation? Does it require, you know, briefing the CDS on on this, developing these processes that have civilians embedded in the promotion boards and all the rest of it? Well,
2: it's interesting. I mean, at the current time, I would say that the National Defense Act does contain a workable structure Mm -hmm. for meaningful governance. In national defense. But what is fundamental to making that governance structure work is the relationship between the minister and the CDS and the deputy minister. And what I have found is that our relationship is one in which we can get things done. Look what we have done thus far And I have been appointed for a very short amount of time (laughs) in a permanent position. For example, accepting the interim recommendation of Madam Justice Louise Arbour. Mm -hmm. That is an important sign that when the minister is very enthusiastic about adopting a recommendation, the working relationship, the balance between civilian and military oversight is understood and comprehended. And that's exactly what I find in terms of working with the CDS, in terms of working with my deputy minister, that there is an understanding of that very first question that you asked Mm -hmm. relating to civilian oversight of the military. And that's what what's needed. That's what's ensconced in the National Defense Act in any case. Mm -hmm. And so to me, if it's respected and understood, it does work. But your question was about legislative change writ large. And I think that while we may not need to reform the act on that governance point that I just raised, we may need to depending on the recommendations of Louise Arbour when we receive them. I want to see her recommendations. I am open to them. I am open to accepting them and I will examine whether we need to look at the amendments to the NDA thereafter.
1: That raises one of the topics I wanted to address, which is what happens if Madame Marbor recommends things that you think are not good. How will you explain to the Canadian public that you are going to choose a different pathway? Because one of the ch- challenges for me in Canada is this strange thing where when we want change, we have to ask a retired Supreme Court justice to come out and, and make recommendations. And they may make good recommendations, but it's it's kind of like when I hear politician say, I'll just listen to the generals. It's like, well, actually you shouldn't just listen to the generals. You should use your own discretion, expertise, all that sort of stuff. So I, I had a conversation with Madame Marbor during this process. She seems to be really on top of things, but it may be that she recommends something that you think is unsound or maybe even politically problematic.
2: Okay, well, just before I get to that, can I just say, because you're an academic and I am too, how interesting (laughs) it is for me to be on the other side of the table because (laughs) we are used to writing these independent reports, right? Mm -hmm. And we are used to getting the terms of reference and we are used to ensuring that our process is independent and we are making recommendations in expertise. And so now I find myself on the other side of the table, and I'm going to be receiving the recommendations from this independent expert, which I will take in a special light, given that I understand the process that she went through and how difficult it is to do that job in terms Mm. of uh, writing these interim and final reports. So having said that, Yes, there is a possibility that she will suggest something that I don't believe is in the best interests of the Canadian Armed Forces, the Defence Team, or our country. And in those circumstances, I have been and will continue to be forthright in discussing those issues with her. And if they're in the final report, probably with the Canadian public. I don't think that there's a view that there's only one way to get things right. And so we have to have a full-fledged discussion about policy and policy approaches when we are making fundamental decisions about what's best for the Canadian Armed Forces. And let me just say one thing, though, that I hope I do see in the Arbor report, Mm -hmm. which is creating an independent reporting mechanism. The terms of reference certainly include assessments and recommendations on establishing external oversight and review mechanisms related to misconduct. I believe this needs to happen. And I very much hope that Justice Arbour's expertise will help our government to get this right. And so I am eagerly awaiting her Mm. commentary and recommendation on This issue. Well, and
1: that's that's really one of the things that that I'm very curious about too, because independent from whom is is really the thing, which is at some point, whatever system is set up has to report to somebody, whether it's the minister, parliament, privy council office, prime minister. I have no idea. And I have opinions about those particular, you know, which which ones might make more or less sense, but we just can't create a body that is, you know, off on its own somewhere. It has to be attached to something.
2: It does. I look at it from the standpoint of An individual in the chain of command that wants to continue working Mm -hmm. in the chain of command, but also has experienced an issue, an event, misconduct, or some other very unfortunate circumstance and needs to have some avenue to report it. And so independent from the chain of command is fundamental. Mm -hmm. You have to remember that I really believe that everybody wants the Canadian Armed Forces to succeed Mm -hmm. when you're working in it. It is just, it's a workplace like other institutions where there are these difficulties. And across the country, when I've been going to bases, one of the issues that I have seen is that people are committed to cultural change in the Canadian Armed Forces at the same time as being extremely dedicated to the institution and the service of our country. And we need to find the structures to put in place so that everyone can keep doing their jobs and delivering for the Canadian Armed Forces and the Canadian public writ
1: large. And the story of the day, of course, to deliver is, is delivering in Eastern Europe. And so you're about to go off to NATO, there's an extraordinary NACDM, NAC, Ministerial of the Defense Ministers. Uh, before we get into the Ukraine specifically, I'm sure curious. Since your work before this was on non-NATO things, how have you enjoyed the NATO lifestyle? Interacting with all these defense ministers within this bizarre structure—has it been what you expected it to be? Were you well briefed beforehand, so that way when you go to these things, they they all kind of make sense? Or is it a weird international organization that you need to to read my book on to understand? I
2: don't want. I want to read your book. <laughs> So regardless of my response here, I will say that I am always extremely well briefed. that we have a fantastic (laughs) team. And when I get to these meetings, I've had numerous pre-meetings, including Mm -hmm. at NATO headquarters with Ambassador Angel, Mm -hmm. who does an excellent job in terms of making sure that we are prepared and I am prepared to speak. But I will also say that there are numerous times when I am marking up my speaking notes, (laughs) And I am saying, I want to say X, Y, Z, I want to focus more on the issues of lethal and non-lethal aid, for example. Mm. I want to focus more on Operation Unifier, for example. And one thing that I really appreciate is the back and forth that we have in terms of preparing
1: my briefs and my speaking notes. Yeah, I was not, I was not meaning that as an indictment of, of your staff and your preparation process. It's just, it's a different environment and it's not one that you had experienced before November. And it's now obviously at the highest level of tension and salience to, to go to Europe and, and to be meeting with these people. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if, if, if there's been any surprises along the way.
2: I don't feel surprised. I feel incredibly honoured to be able to be at the table and to be able to represent our country internationally. And I also have seen that Canada holds a particular place of importance in these meetings. And that importance is accorded to some of the things that I say. And I would say that's an honor as well. On the Ukraine issue in particular, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, has said a number of times in our meetings at NATO and publicly that Canada has been a leading country in terms of its support for Ukraine, not just because of the extensive aid that is providing right now, but because we were in Ukraine right after the invasion of Crimea Mm -hmm. with Operation Unifier training 33,000 Ukrainian soldiers, something that has made an impact on the NATO alliance in terms of what countries can do Mm -hmm. in cases of degradation and violations of territorial integrity.
1: Do you get a sense that that you you are listened to more at these meetings because of the investment in Latvia, that as a, one of the four framework nations, that we have a bigger voice than some of the folks that didn't show up, in the, as as leaders, We're, I'm not going to pick on the French too much, but the French refused that mission. We took the we took that role. I'm not going to say that Macron you know, and his defense minister sat in the back of the room while you're you're speaking, but do you get a sense that that we've gained influence because of that effort? I think so.
2: Yes. I think that our role leading the Enhanced Forward Presence Battle Group in Latvia over the past five years Mm. has been fundamentally important to the protection of NATO's eastern flank and the role that Canada can play. And everybody wants more Canada. That's what I hear at these meetings. Where else can you help us? And we have had requests across the board for more Canada and The reality is that we cannot be everywhere. There are opportunity costs to providing additional resources domestically and internationally. And it is always a focal point for us to make sure that we are well-resourced in the missions that we have taken on. And in particular, that's, again, comes back to your very first question about how you make decisions and how the triumvirate that I outlined works well together. And when we have these requests for more Canada, more Canadian presence, I always take the issue back to the Chief of Defence Staff and the Deputy Minister. I ask for their considered views. I ask for them to lay out the risks and benefits of moving forward with this request. And we have a considered opinion before making decisions. So when you saw the announcement, for example, of sending additional troops in Uh, terms of Operation Reassurance, and I announced that we are sending up to 460 more troops on air, land, and sea under reassurance. That announcement was as as a result of considered conversations with the CDS and with the Deputy Minister in terms of capacity and what we can realistically do. That's how decision-making should work at the Department of National Defence, and that's how it is working.
1: I have to ask a question on behalf of a, one of my students who's completing his dissertation. How much is Treasury Board constrained when you're making these decisions about how many you are you going to send to the Hansford Presence?
2: How much is Treasury Board constrained? Constraining you. Constraining me. We have resources, generally speaking, and we are utilizing our resources. And we are also, at the same time, living up to our international and domestic obligations. And that's a balancing act. The bottom line is it's a balancing act. And the reality is that the way I work as minister is I come forward with policy proposals based on consider advice that I think are important and in the best interests of our country and our responsibilities in our multilateral partnerships.
1: And then we seek the resources to do that. Okay. Well, let's get to the greening situation. Canada has whatever qualms there were before about sending lethal aid, we're sending lethal aid. We've shipped it. Uh, You were very clear on Friday that the stuff that we've promised has actually been put on planes. The planes have flown, they've landed, the
2: stuff's been delivered.
1: So what else can we do that we're not doing short of going to war with Russia? And that's I would put no-fly zone into that latter category.
2: So I take it from your question that you do not want me to talk about the 100 Carl Gustav anti-tank weapon systems, the 1600 fragmentation vests, and the 4500 rocket launchers and 7500 hand grenades that we have sent.
1: You are well briefed and you keep those numbers well in mind. I, th- I think that all well, that's been very important. So, and, and um, It's been well reported. The question is yeah. what's next?
2: So the way I have approached this file is to be in contact frequently with minister resnikov the defense minister in ukraine about what ukraine needs and what more canada can do and that is a conversation that is still occurring Mm -hmm. you saw that we announced one million dollars for satellite imagery for ukraine that in particular is just an example of how the conversation is going we receive requests and we seek to fulfill them from Ukraine. In terms of what we would do on no-fly zone, our decision-making is very much in lockstep with NATO. And in particular, the no-fly zone and the severe consequences that a no-fly zone could have for two military powers to be engaged in the skies over Ukraine is one of the issues that has driven the decision-making in this area. But I expect that we will discuss this when we meet on Wednesday at the defense minister's meeting at NATO. We are very united on the point relating to no-fly zone, but as I said, as a a NATO member, we are very much aligned with our NATO counterparts. And after the last Defence Minister's meeting that I was at in February, I had a meeting with Secretary Wallace and Secretary Austin from the UK and the US, respectively, my counterparts, to ensure that we as allies are also very much on the same page. Mm -hmm. And so our relationships are kind of very tight between the three of our countries, but also in terms of the NATO alliance. And I will be meeting with my collateral meetings tomorrow and Wednesday in
1: Brussels. Well, the travel you're going through must really upset your daily battle rhythm. How do you manage to read everything, all of your assigned reading and grading while still... Having meetings scheduled from dark to dark, from sunrise to sunset, I can't imagine what this is like for for you. So how do you manage to do all that and still stay calm, cool, collected, and all that sort of stuff?
2: I am just honored to do the work, honestly. And so... I make sure that I'm well briefed and I don't go to any anywhere without having read my materials. It's kind of like teaching a class, Steve. We would oh, you, never go into a class without knowing how to teach the material. And I just bring all those skills over to this role and do the same thing.
1: You've never lectured without having read all the reading for that day's class?
2: No. and I would never do that and I'll just say you know one of the reasons I thought maybe I should take another step outside of teaching is because I knew my lectures so well Mm -hmm. that I didn't need my notes anymore and I was just teaching from my slides and I thought to myself am I being appropriately challenged Mm -hmm. in this venue and I'm sure you probably have had that feelings sometimes in your own.
1: Well, my own feeling is more, have I said this before? In which context have they said this thing that I'm about to say? But are you being appropriately challenged now? Have you found a job right now that's uh,
2: challenging? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I am being appropriately challenged. This is not to say that I don't miss academia. I very much miss academia and I hope to go back to teaching at some point. But I will say that There are so many challenges in government and in particular in policymaking and Mm -hmm. ensuring that what you feel as minister is the right approach for the institution over which you have charge Mm -hmm. is actually a view that is shared around the table. Whether we're talking about the Canadian Armed Forces, whether we're talking about defense spending, whether we're talking about our commitments in multilateral organizations or to peacekeeping, for example, it is a process of conversations and sharing your views and hoping that others will also agree with you on these
1: particular issues. Well, I really appreciate your time with us today. I know that you are probably getting a flight in the very, very near future, and you've got lots of briefing notes to, to consume before you, before you do that. So thank you, Sir Nan, for your time with us. I know the Defense Committee really appreciates the, the transparency you've had over the past several months. <laughs> and reaching out to, to those of us in it uh, to share what you're doing. And this conversation is part of that. And I, I really appreciate that. So thanks for having, spending time with us today.
2: Anytime. I, I loved chatting with you. And also, if I can get into your class sometime and co-teach a class, I would love to do that. So let's try to make sure we schedule that as well. And I, I promise not to take up too much of the lecture time. <laughs>
1: I I think the students would be very, very happy to have you speak rather than me. We're going to do
2: it. We're going to do it. I'm going to start looking for a date. So thanks so much, Steve, and uh, we'll talk soon. Great.
1: For our our, RR segment today, I've got three recommendations. First, There's The Atom Project. It's a Ryan Reynolds movie on Netflix. And it is really, really terrific. It's a a lot of fun. It features a man who has to go back in time to hang out with his younger self, who's a boy, to confront problems posed by time travel. Who who knew that time travel would open up all kinds of problems? And it's funny. It's moving. It's got some decent action to it. Ryan Reynolds is just terrific. So uh, I recommend that. The second is I've been finishing up a series of books about the Pacific War uh, that I mentioned a few times. And it reminded me that I might not have mentioned before on this podcast the Rick Atkinson Liberation Trilogy. So just as I'm finishing up a trilogy of books on the Pacific War, previously I read a book, three books written about the American War and European War, but it was from the American perspective of the European War, and that was really terrific because it has a lot of really interesting lines politics to it. I learned a lot, even though I thought I knew a lot about about that conflict. And so it's the Liberation Trilogy by Rick. Atkinson. And finally, a podcast I've mentioned before, but I'm going to mention it again because it ended, maybe it's run, or at least it came to a a climax, and that is Dead Eyes. It's about a guy who got cut from the TV show Band of Brothers by Tom Hanks, who apparently had said that he had dead eye. And it's a, a fun series of podcasts where he has interviews with all kinds of people in Hollywood about casting, about the dynamics of Hollywood, about all kinds of stuff. And it's really about how one bounces back from rejection. And as an academic where we're getting rejected all the time, whenever we send our stuff out, we're constantly being told either it's not good enough, or maybe it's good enough and you fix it this way. And so I saw a lot in common with his, his journey and, and it finished or at least it culminated because he got to end up having the last episode was an interview with none other than Tom Hanks. And it was delightful. So those are my three recommendations for this week. Good luck in everything that you do. and I hope you enjoyed the interview with the Minister Anand and, and maybe we'll have another chance to talk to her in the future. Thank care.